0: Welcome to the very first episode of Season 2 of Ethos English, the podcast for advanced English learners with a focus on vocabulary building, learning strategies, and critical thinking. I'm thrilled to be back. Let me start out by explaining the format as it's changed slightly from last season. At the end of each episode, I'll define or paraphrase all of the key vocabulary, when you consult the show notes at ethosenglish.com slash podcast, you'll find links to all of the resources I mention, whether they be essays, videos, or other podcasts. You'll be prompted to sign up to my newsletter, and by doing so, you'll get a monthly review of the latest episodes with a link to a Quizlet flashcard study set to learn that month's vocabulary by heart. Today, I'm recording bright and early. I tried to record this yesterday, but Barcelona on a Sunday afternoon is pretty noisy. Luckily, first thing in the morning, the only background noise is the birds. So, let's get going before my neighbours wake up and start making a racket. So, today I'll be talking about the zombies in our midst. And I was inspired to talk about this after reading about Paul Krugman the 2008 Nobel Prize Laureate for Economics and New York Times columnist. And he came up with this idea, well I don't know if he came up with it, but he's definitely popularized it, of what's called zombie ideas. That is, ideas that refuse to die despite overwhelming evidence to disprove them. And I find this idea very compelling, because I think zombie ideas are everywhere, even in education. And today I'm going to talk about uh, zombie ideas in economics, in the news, and then I'm going to talk about a zombie idea in language learning, and more importantly, I'm going to provide you with an antidote to this zombie idea. Now, last month, the new British Prime Minister, Liz Truss, and her Chancellor of the Exchequer, Kwasi Kwarteng. Uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer means Finance Minister. That's the term we would use in most other countries, but the UK has a special name for this post. It's the number three in the UK government after the Prime Minister and the Deputy Prime Minister. The Chancellor, for short, sets economic pa- policy, including spending and taxation. So quasi uh, Kwarteng, the Chancellor this new chancellor under the new prime minister, Liz Truss, last month announced these massive tax cuts that disproportionately benefit the most affluent members of society. And this announcement was a bit of a bombshell. It was a shock to a lot of people. And it had a negative impact on the UK's perceived creditworthiness in the international capital markets. And it's not had the effect they were hoping for mostly because the government simply doesn't have the money to pay for these tax cuts and they have to borrow money from capital markets to finance these tax cuts and uh, as it turns out international investors have been spooked by this move if an investor's spooked they're they're made nervous by something and this is driving up the government's borrowing costs and actually undermining economic growth rather than boosting it. So this is a zombie idea, this idea of increasing growth by cutting taxes. This obsession with lowering taxes is a zombie idea according to Paul Krugman, not according to me, I'm just uh, repeating what he said. And um, an example of uh, a more egregious example of the this package of cuts was the scrapping of bankers bonuses. So until now, the UK had a cap, a limit on how much the bonuses that a banker could receive, at least tax free. And so the UK is going to scrap these limits. They're going to get rid of them. And um, I'm not going to go into any further details about this story except to point out that it's worth reading up on. And if you are interested in reading up on it, I would highly recommend the opinion piece for the Guardian newspaper that Gordon Brown wrote. Gordon Brown served as a Member of Parliament, uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, like Quasi Kwarteng, Uh, Which uh, I should point out I kind of enjoyed reading about this quasi Quarteng has been nicknamed by some people in the media as Kamikaze Quarteng because his plan is a bit suicidal it would seem Uh, Which sounds funny until you realize that he's going to be taking everyone else down with him, too, so it's not like he's uh, on his own in this uh, suicide mission, unfortunately, so yeah Gordon Brown was once upon a time in Quasi Kwarteng's shoes. He was chancellor as well as prime minister, uh, all of this under the Labour Party. So I'm going to include the link to this opinion piece. I highly recommend reading it. And um, now going back to Paul Krugman and this idea of zombie ideas. Well, he actually wrote a book specifically about zombie ideas in the realm of economics. And this book is called Arguing with Zombies. Economics, Politics, and the Fight for a Better Future. This was published back in 2020. Now, the key idea in Quasi-Quarteng's budget, which is causing so much damage and is part of the bigger sort of, let's say, ideology that Paul Krugman is fighting against with everything he's got, is this concept of trickle-down economics. This is an interesting metaphor that was coined back in the eighties, when neoliberalism, or lib- I, th- I think it would be liber- neoliberalism, was becoming incredibly popular around the world, especially in the U.S. and the U.K. under Ronald Reagan and uh, Margaret Thatcher. I Should point out, Thatcher was part of the Tory Party, just as Liz Truss and quasi Quarteng, the Tories, uh, another name for the Conservatives. And uh, Ronald Reagan, Republican. So, interestingly, um, as background, uh, there's a really interesting article in The Atlantic about Paul Krugman. And if you read it, you'll find out, uh, as I did, that Paul Krugman actually started out his, his career as a technocrat. That is, he perceived his role as an economist just to do the numbers and not have overtly political beliefs about The whole process of economics. And he was actually employed briefly in the White House when Ronald Reagan was in power in the 1980s. So he was right at the heart of the engine of trickle-down economics. I'm sorry for mixing metaphors here, an engine of trickle-down economics. And so just to explain briefly, trickle-down economics is the idea that additional wealth gained by the richest people in society, often through tax cuts, will have a good effect on the lives of everyone. Uh, And this is based on the assumption that the rich, the affluent, will put their extra money into businesses and investments. And this comes from the verb in English, trickle, which means uh, when a liquid flows slowly in drops or in a thin stream, like raindrops down a pane of glass, like a window on a rainy day. Um, and the other day, a friend of mine, Anthony, who's also an English teacher, hello, Anthony, hope you're listening, um, he pointed out, I thought it was quite interesting, that this metaphor, I don't know who came up with it, is like tripled trickle-down economics, because huge areas of the economy have been sort of engineered in, under in, under different governments based around this principle and he points out that it's actually a very sad metaphor because when you think about it first of all like when do things trickle well when it's raining and it's it's very slow and if you look at a drop of water going down a pane of glass it goes very slowly and it doesn't go in straight lines and his point was that as far as metaphors go it's not very inspiring and he contrasted this with a different idea. He said, what about, what would be the opposite of trickle down economics? And he wrote on Twitter, what about bubble up economics? <laughs> this idea of of the opposite idea of wealth coming, rising to the top from, a, from below and bubbling up. And I thought that was a beautiful image. I thought it was very clever, uh, actually thinking about the metaphor more visually. We have to activate metaphors because sometimes they end up dying in our minds and we forget they're even metaphors. But anyway, I won't belabor this point. Um, So zombie ideas. They're in the economy and they have real effects. This obsession with tax cuts is not supported by uh, research, especially when countries don't have the money to finance them. And the idea is that um, as the Atlantic article points out, uh, Paul Krugman has become a strident critic. And it's, he's become so critical of this new, uh, this obsession with what he sees as something that's not viable anymore. It hasn't worked and it's caused real suffering. And he, he's strident. That is, he's incredibly critical to the point of annoying people. And the article is very interesting because it talks in about, about how basically... The author of the article suggests that he's mostly right, but that he doesn't actually reach his critics because he's so angry in his approach to criticizing them. And that reminded me of discussions I've had recently with people who I disagreed with and how we really have to guard against being too self-righteous and getting too angry because then we end up alienating the people we're trying to uh, convince or at least help see things from a different perspective. So if you ever struggle with talking to people you disagree with, this Atlantic article about Paul Krugman is interesting for that reason, too. Now, today I want to talk about a zombie idea in the world of education, because zombie ideas are everywhere. It's not just, they're not just in economics. And uh, I find it I, I, I challenge you to go out and try to find zombie ideas of your own, that ideas that you think have outlived their usefulness out in the world. There are plenty of them. They're all over the place. And it's our idea to spot them and stab them through their unbeating heart. (laughs) So, last week I spoke at a conference here in Barcelona called Innovate ELT. And it was about uh, innovating in the area of language teaching in English. So, I talked a lot about this idea of zombie ideas in English language teaching. And so, what is this... Zombie idea, or one of them, because there are loads, too many to mention in one episode. But the one I'm going to be focusing on today that is important for you if you are wanting to improve your English. So, I was talking about how there's a lot of evidence to show that a huge part of our language development is incidental. That is, it happens while we're using language, but not when we're explicitly studying it. And I read a book about this recently by Jeff Jordan. Uh, he's a, a writer in uh, the ELT field, uh, all about this and how basically English teachers disregard the evidence that's right in front of them because we're so used to doing things in a certain way. And like Krugman, I'm kind of pissed off. Um, and why? Why am I pissed off? Because So much of English language teaching still focuses on the explicit learning of grammar, which we know doesn't actually lead to increased fluency in the language. So basically, we're spending loads of hours every week in our classrooms and encouraging our students to go home and spend loads more hours doing more of what doesn't work, kind of like uh, what the Tories are doing in the UK right now with the economy. And... I was thinking that the fact that so many language teachers and their learners use these ineffective methods is a prime example of what we call the herd mentality Uh, that is people all doing the same thing imitating what they see other people doing around them without questioning it and so today i'm here to say dare to be different dare i say dare to be better or more effective And devote more of your language learning efforts to getting input through reading and listening. So my idea is not complicated. It's not too academic. But it is supported by academic research that explicit study can be helpful. But if you aren't doing a fair amount of reading and listening in English, your English isn't improving at the rate it should be. But... That's not to say that explicit study isn't helpful. It is. And I'm going to give you a tip today, which is about rather than learning grammar, if you are going to study, I think it's really helpful to develop your ability, hone your ability to notice patterns in language that you otherwise wouldn't have picked up on. So think about studying not so much as something where you're absorbing information, but you're actually becoming more perceptive. You are better able to notice patterns because English, like any language, is full of patterns. And you can become better at noticing them. And so then as you're reading, as you're listening, you will naturally learn more from that input. So here's today's language learning strategy. Earlier, I mentioned how the Chancellor of the Exchequer in the UK, sets economic policy. Now, the word set is one of a group of verbs like get, go, take, make, do, have, give, and put, all these really short common verbs in English that we call delexicalized verbs. We give them this name because on their own they often contain very little meaning, yet are the building blocks of the most common word combinations in English. That is what we call collocations. Because these words are seemingly easy, English learners don't notice them. Or rather, you don't notice how they're part of a larger chunk of language. And sounding natural English depends on you noticing and learning these collocations. So, here are some other examples of collocations with the verb set that I found using the website Sketch Engine which is a fantastic website for language teachers and language learners. Uh, I will put the link in the show notes. So here are some examples of how there are lots of very common everyday collocations with delexicalized verbs. So we've got, you can set a record, you can set a goal, you can set a limit, you can set a precedent. Can set a target, and these are just a few of the very many examples of collocations containing the verb set. So, my tip for you try this. Um, choose a text, say one of the articles I've referred to in today's episode, go through all or part of it, maybe just a paragraph, and identify all of the collocations containing delexicalized verbs. That is, get, go, take, make, do, have, give, put, and set. Or you could just identify get, for instance. Just go through a text and identify all of the chunks containing get. You could limit yourself to a single verb. Now, Scott Thornbury, he's the uh, foremost expert on learning English as a foreign language. He speaks at pretty much en- any international conference for English teachers that I know of hugely popular figure he's a wonderful person i think he's done a lot for the profession he's got a great imagination he's a great public speaker well he refers to these patterns as word grammar and he wrote a whole book on them to draw our attention to them but one of his one of the books that i think uh, has been less popular it's called i believe it's called natural grammar uh, I've I've read it um and it's actually not very well known so if you happen to be a teacher as well as a learner I highly recommend getting a copy of it um so I just mention this so that you don't just take my word for this idea don't take my word for it that that these basic collocations with delexicalized verbs are important Scott the foremost expert on these on English language teaching uh, has pointed out that these basic patterns are basically the uh, the um, backbone of English. So, stop focusing so much on grammar and try putting this strategy into practice. Ah, there you go. Put something into practice. Put another delexicalized verb. Put something into practice. A common collocation containing a delexicalized verb. Now that I've taught you this, you won't be able to stop noticing them everywhere. Now, let's go over today's vocabulary, which you'll be able to study using my monthly Quizlet flashcard set if you sign up to my newsletter. Keep in mind that the flashcards include sentences with the vocabulary in new contexts to help you learn more effectively. So, in our midst, if something's in your midst, it's a person or thing that is among a group of people and it's often something dangerous or threatening or unusual so i decided to call this episode zombies in our midst it means they are among us and obviously zombies are not something we necessarily want among us when i looked for other examples in the dictionary i came up with an example of a, a spies in our midst and then another example was poverty in our midst something unpleasant. Maybe unexpected, um, especially if you're a Tory. Um, now, disproportionately benefit the most affluent members of society. That's I was talking about the tax cuts by the Conservatives, the Tories. Uh, this is we are if you, if something disproportionately affects someone here dip, disproportionately benefits, it affects them much more than other people. Adverbs are very important for advanced learners, and this is a common chunk, to disproportionately benefit, or it could be disproportionately harm, for instance. Now, spook investors. We'll often come across this verb, uh, to spook, uh, it's used, we can also talk about spooking an animal, but in the newspapers, for instance, you'll often hear about investors being spooked. It means uh, being frightened, being made nervous by uh, instability, unpredictability. If you drive up the cost of something, it means you make something more expensive, a phrasal verb. Now, undermine something. So I was talking about how these new measures brought in by the new prime minister and her chancellor are undermining the growth they are trying to promote. So if you undermine something, you gradually make it less strong or effective. I talked about the scrapping of bankers' bonuses, or rather the caps on these bonuses, If you scrap something, you get rid of it. You decide not to use a plan or system because it's not practical. Trickle-down economics. A belief that additional wealth gained by the richest people in society will have a good economic effect on the lives of everyone because the rich will put the extra money into businesses, investments, and so on. Trickle. When a liquid flows slowly in drops or in a thin stream like raindrops down a pane of glass. A herd mentality. When people behave like animals in a herd, and stick together without questioning the direction they're going in. Pick up on something. If you pick up on something, you notice it, especially when other people haven't. Now, at one point I said, when I was giving you this tip about noticing delexicalized lexicalized verbs, I said the following. I said, choose a text, say one of the articles, now, notice how I used say in a particular way. I used it here to attract attention to what I was about to talk about, namely the articles. I'm drawing your attention to the fact that you don't have to go looking for texts to practice, to put into practice. My tip, I've given you reading to do, let's say, is homework. So, we use say in this way when we're about to mention uh, an idea, a suggestion, and we want to draw attention to it. And finally, I talked about Scott Thornbury being the foremost expert on English language learning and teaching. If someone's the foremost expert on something, they're the leading expert. That is, the expert with the most authority. So, thank you very much for listening. As I said, I'm really happy to be back for another season. I'd love to hear from you. Let me know if you found the strategy for slaying language learning zombies useful. Tell me about your experiences trying to spot common collocations containing delexicalized verbs. What examples did you come up with? I'm curious to know. So get in touch by sending me an email to Sean at ethosenglish.com. Thanks for listening. And see you soon.